Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. All right, so today we are getting to start to wrap up our series that we've been in for a while on the book of Ephesians. And we're going to look at a powerful metaphor today in detail that Paul uses to pull together really in a, in a visual metaphor something that pulls together all of the teaching that he's taught us so far about how we live a faith-filled life and how we overcome evil and do good in life. Now, last week we talked about the evil from the standpoint of supernatural evil and the demonic and, and spiritual warfare. And I realize that there are some who may not accept that reality. Uh, they may not, you may not accept the reality that there are, is a demonic influence that affects us today. And, and I would just invite you, I'm not going to go into that again today, I would invite you if you struggle with that to uh, take the time to go back and listen to last week's podcast before you outright reject that. See, we talked last week about how the demonic influences is primarily through lies, and we also talked about how uh, the Bible views evil, and it's, a, it's the most complex, I think, nuanced definition of evil that I can find in the entire world because it allows for the idea of evil to become something that comes to us through the physical it allows evil through the psychological, it allows evil through the moral, and it also includes the possibility of negative demonic spiritual influence. It is a comprehensive view of that. And today, we're going to look more detailed about how we win this battle. And uh, we're going to start, actually, by uh, looking at one of my favorite comedians, Tim Hawkins, as he does a sketch on how we sometimes as a church... Uh, get a little churchy and a little bit strange and come off a little bit weird in how we approach this topic. So turn your attention to the screens and enjoy this. I think the way we pray is, it, prayer, is a, prayer is a powerful thing, but I think it's when you grow up in church, it's just you hear prayers all the time in different styles and stuff and little quirks that people have when they pray. I don't know, little phrases that I don't understand to this day. But we use the phrases, but we, that's just what we heard growing up. We think that's just the right thing to say when we pray. You know, like hedge of protection. You ever hear that? I hear that a lot. Hedge of protection. Damn, we are praying a hedge of protection around you, buddy. That's right, a hedge. Mm-hmm. Around you and your whole family. A hedge, huh? I don't mean to complain. Is that the best you can do? <laughs> How about a thick cement wall <laughs> with some razor wire on top of that bad boy? Hedge protect, good set of clippers, get right through that thing. I'm sure the devil's got a set of those. I mean, you think a hedge is going to scare the devil away? What is this greenery? I can't get through that. Move that bush. My greatest weakness is landscaping. How do they know? That's how the devil walks, like this, whoa. He has a pointy tail. He doesn't want to step on his tail. And he talks like a game show host. Fantastic. You get the turtle wax. <laughs> a hedge. What we're going to discover today as we look at the armor of God is that really spiritual warfare is all about worship 
and, and, and immersing ourselves in the majesty of God. And the fact of victory is just a byproduct of that. Let's take a look at our text today uh, because, uh, well, uh, how many of you growing up had a Sunday school lesson on the armor of God? Yeah? Did you, did you have the privilege of wearing the plastic helmet and the plastic breastplate and the plastic shield and having a, a plastic sword for a sword fight with your with your friends and and did you have the same plastic sword sword that I had that broke on impact the first time it really made you really confident in that but the lesson that was learned uh, with some of the uh, strangeness of that for me as a boy was uh, was that we can swing the sword and we can enforce the truth on others and therefore we are noble little crusaders and that isn't the best image in our culture today isn't it? it's not quite pc is it Let's take a look at the practical wisdom that Paul is actually giving us through this militant, uh, military-based metaphor. Uh, chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And Lord, I just ask that as we take a look at this word that you've given us, that you would by your spirit come to each and every one of us right now and guide our thoughts, guide our hearts, guide our feelings, guide our memories. And would you speak to us and lead us to a place of greater protection and greater victory and greater impact in our lives because of your Spirit's work through us. Lord, we welcome you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at this text through three lessons that Paul gives us. I'm sure there's probably more in here, but he gives us three lessons at least. One is a preparation and training lesson. Two, he gives us a lesson on understanding what the armor is and how we put it on. And the last lesson that we're going to look at today is his, his, his intended outcome of being fully armored. So first, God's lesson on preparation and training. Notice that Paul uses the words very specifically, put on the armor so that you can take your stand. Taking your stand is something we say to an army when battle is about ready to begin. And it says, you need to put on your armor before that point. You need to get used, and, used to and practiced in putting this armor on so that it becomes a part of you before the fiery darts start to fly. If they've started to fly, it's too late. In fact, the Greek tense that goes along with this is very clear that these are actions that we take at a point in time. They are a choice that we regularly need to make, a habit that becomes a part of us, just like getting up and brushing our teeth. Is that everybody's habit yet? And eating breakfast and all that kind of stuff. It needs to become just like that stuff we always do. Now, my wife will tell you, for entertainment, I love to watch war documentaries. 
I don't know why she doesn't think that's cool, but I think it's a lot of fun. I really like it. And I like it because I'm always amazed at how people who were previously completely undisciplined or very self-centered can end up in a place of great threat on a team of people and all of a sudden become very disciplined and exhibit tremendous focus and bravery and self-sacrifice in such a way that they never had before in their entire life and likely probably never will again if they're lucky enough to come home, right? And the same is true about our faith, isn't it? The things get bad and we turn toward our faith and when things are going well, we exhibit kind of this peacetime, prosperity-based discipline where we get a little soft and we get a little more self-focused on experiencing life and the things that bring us enjoyment. And yet when temptation isn't strong, therefore, we end up paying a little less attention to praying We stay a little bit less regular or committed in church attendance or we stay less engaged in our small groups or we skip reading the Bible a little bit more often when temptation or difficulty is not there. And then the arrows start to fly and our marriage is struggling or our parenting, we're afraid that we're going to fail or finances or whatever it is that causes difficulty in your life to really ramp up starts to happen And we reach out to God again. And we maybe get even a little bit angry at God that the battle isn't going as well as we hoped it would and we wonder why our faith isn't more effective. I was watching this last week, an old movie starring Kirk Douglas and John Wayne and Yul Brenner called Cast a Giant Shadow. It's actually a historically based film on the formation of the state of Israel in 1948. If you recall history well, the Jews fled Europe in masses after the Holocaust and tried to go to Palestine. And in 1948, there was the plan to make a Jewish state. But before that Jewish state emerged, the Jews were forbidden to have firearms and forbidden to have an army. Now, they formed an underground, an underground Jewish army, but as refugees and illegal immigrants were flooding the shores daily, they were not organized. There was no training. There was no resourcing of the Jewish army. And then statehood came, and immediately upon declaration of statehood, five Arab nations declared war and invaded with their professional armies and their tanks against the Jews in Palestine. The best the Jews could do was delay the advances with skirmishes. And one of their actual tactics became hiding and bypassing the enemies, trying to maintain a hold on territory and key transportation routes long enough for the UN ceasefire to take place, which was scheduled to take place like 14 days earlier, later than that. And you see, you ask the question, why were they so weak? I mean, they were highly motivated, some of the most motivated people in all of history to fight, but they were not trained They were not well equipped. And when we don't put on the armor of God, we also don't fight well, and we're much like they were. The best they could do was to frequently go into battle and get slaughtered because they were so untrained going against professional armies and superior firepower. And while occasionally they would inflict enough damage to slow the progress of the enemy, they really just had a hope that was completely based upon surviving getting by, somehow getting by until somebody could rescue them. In this instance, the UN freezing the land boundaries and coming to their protection. But that isn't what we want in life, isn't it? And it certainly isn't what we want in our faith. We don't want to feel like our faith is marginally helpful. We don't want to feel like our faith 
is just barely keeping us from extinction. It's helping us lick our wounds and giving us a place to hide in and avoid just getting by until Jesus comes back and rescues us. We don't want to live in a faith like that, right? But it takes preparation and training not to. Kyle Spangler, one of our elders uh, at church here and a frequent, uh, regular volunteer in our children's ministry, retweeted a quote this last week by Bobby Knight that I thought was really interesting. It said this, Most people have the will to win. Few people have the will to prepare to win. And when we don't heed Paul's admonition to prepare, to learn to put this armor on regularly so that it becomes second nature to us, it becomes a part of us, our life and our faith look completely different from the experience God intends if we were to learn to have this armor on on a regular basis. And when the fiery arrows start to go, it's not the time to put on the armor. Tim Keller says it like this. Says it like this. He says, the fortification of your soul, the armoring of your soul takes time. Are we willing to take the time to prepare is the question. So that's the first lesson Paul's giving us. What's the second question? Second, the second lesson is about what is the armor? What is the meaning of the pieces of the armor? How do we put them on? And we're going to take a look at each one of the pieces of the Roman armor because while it was a, a common illustration that would have been, a, it was actually a brilliant illustration for Paul's day. I mean, everybody had seen Romans and they saw the armor. We just don't really get that. So let's look at the armor in detail, the belt of truth. Now, our translation that we use today is actually kind of tames it and makes the translation a little PC. Uh, some of the older translations get at it a little more clearly where it says, girding your loins with truth. It was putting on a belt that had chain mail dangling over the part of every man that every man wants to protect first. Let's just be honest. The etymology of the word is protecting the generative portion of your body, the part that creates and multiplies life. And we could probably spend a whole message just on this alone. We don't have time, but let me just leave you this thought with you. We oftentimes seek truth. This is the belt of truth. We oftentimes seek truth based upon what primarily works best for us, a what's in it for me focus in our first question. And Paul here is giving us the lesson that truth The first question of truth, the best question of truth, starts with discerning how does this multiply life through me? How does this multiply goodness and freedom from evil for others through me? And that's the first question if we really want to get at understanding and living in truth, not the what's in it for me version of the question. But let's get back to the main point. Paul is basically saying truth is the center point. Truth is the first thing. It is the foundation of all the other pieces. He goes on to the second, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, we understand righteousness and oftentimes understand it wrongly because righteousness has a two-part definition. The first and most important part of righteousness is right standing, right relationship. And the second part of the righteousness is the behaviors that give us that right standing. And the nuance of that definition is extremely important because when we get it backwards and we start focusing on behaviors first as righteousness, we fall immediately back into a pharisaical religion of trying to justify ourselves through moral performance. We have 
to have the definition right. It is right standing first. Now, the breastplate, what is it? It's designed to protect the most critical vital organs a, a soldier has. It's, and, and so Paul is giving us this beautiful metaphor of how when we learn to put righteousness on, right standing with God on, it protects our hearts our vital organs from the questions, the accusations of the enemy that make us question God's love, that make us question God's goodness, that make us question whether He'll provide for us or not. And when we don't put this breastplate on of righteousness, we end up allowing our hearts to be hurt and hardened and we have a hard time even sensing the life of God. The metaphor is actually very clearly attached to what Paul taught earlier in the first chapter, that it goes back to us being adopted as God's children, co-heirs with Christ. We are loved. We are accepted. We are secure. And our hearts no longer need fear anything. When we put this right standing on over ourselves, we can live a life completely free of worry and anxiety. Now, obviously, we don't, right? So we have many little opportunities and some big opportunities every single day to learn to put this armor on, right? I mean, we all face circumstances on a regular basis that raise our blood pressure, raise our anxiety, raise our worry, raise our concern. How in those moments when you are worried about your kids or worried about your job or worried about your finances, how do you pick up and put this armor on? Do you pick up righteousness? Do you armor your heart and your soul with the strength and the confidence of being absolutely, completely loved and accepted by God? Or do you let worry and anxiety uh, rule the day in your heart and let those fiery arrows tie your stomach up in knots as they hit? Third piece of the armor is the shoes of peace text says it this way. It says, your feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, the Bible's replete with metaphors of, how, of, of feet and how God wants our feet to go down strong paths and firm foundations and, and, and great roads and all that kind of stuff. And we even see it in places like Handel's Messiah and great music, quoting some of Scripture where the high places become low and the rough places become smooth. But the real question that's being asked of us there, I think, is this. We use a lot of things to motivate ourselves to action, to motivate ourselves to perform well, to motivate ourselves to make decisions to move forward in life. What What do you use to motivate you in your life? I mean, Paul is using here a military metaphor, and in that military metaphor, I think we can easily relate to the fact from some of the movies you've seen or documentaries you've seen of how people under extreme threat and circumstances can freeze and they can't even move because they're so frozen by fear. We've all seen that. Or we've seen people who are so overcome by fear that they wander out into no man's zone, not even realize they're wandering out. Or we see people who are so touched by fear that they are in a frenzy out of control and they either run suicidally at the, at the enemy or they run uh, in a frenzy completely uncontrolled away and, and none of those things are what we want in life. They don't, they don't end up with the result we want. And we can go back to the sports arena too for many of you can relate to this. Uh, a lot of people in sports, especially in football, try to use anger as a way to motivate themselves to play 
really, really well, right? And we don't see it as much as we used to, but we've all seen and we've all heard about the coaches who will just yell at their people to either get them angry at themselves or even angry at him or angry at the other team just so they'll perform well, right? We know that's a way that we motivate performance and people do that. But I used to meditate on the scripture a lot back in my sports playing days. And I quickly came to the conclusion that my best performance in sports, my best performance in life, because I think we can apply it to life in general, didn't come when I was trying to motivate myself from anger, trying to overcome the anger of my, bo- of my boss or my, or, my, or my coach. And it didn't come from anger at the opposing players or those opposing me. I never played my best in those. When I played my best, I was at peace with myself. And the giftedness that I had, I was at peace with the outcome, and I was free to play loose and for the love of the game. And the same is true in our home, in our business decisions, in our relationship decisions. When you are confident, when you're confident that Jesus' leadership in your life is really good news, that you are forgiven, you are loved, and you are assured of being redeemed one day, and He has wonderful plans prepared in advance for you to walk into every day. The level of peace, the level of internal freedom that frees you to walk into any situation without fear, without fear of failure, without fear of harm, without fear of conflict. Difficult decisions become easier because you are more clear-headed. You're playing life loose for the love of life. And you're actually able to hear God better in those times. As your life learns to put on these shoes of peace that help us take steps of peace, you become increasingly stable in everything. And I know none of us live there all the time, right? And that's the reason we have to have this habit of putting this armor on, making the choice, even when we don't feel like it, to put this armor on through worship, through prayer, through meditating on the truth of God's Word that says He has a great plan, a plan to prosper you, and He has good works prepared in advance for you to do every day. The fourth piece of the armor is the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So what is faith? Faith is the ability to trust in what is not yet until it becomes a reality. And since this is the armor of God, it's not your armor. This is God's armor that you're putting on. It's not yours. What you are trusting in is God's promises to you as though they were a reality until they become a reality. Now, let's just clarify a couple of mistakes. Faith is not a lack of doubt. Faith entails doubt. Doubt's a reality in faith. And faith is not a denial of reality. Faith takes into account everything realistically. But faith is choosing to act and believe in a certain way, even in the face of doubt and reality. Think about it. Paul is actually already talking to people of faith. 
He's talking to people who already have faith. He's not talking to people who don't. And so he's actually giving us a similar lesson to the lesson Jesus gave his disciples in Mark 4. Jesus had been teaching that day. It was a long day, thousands of people, difficult ministry. He was absolutely exhausted. And he said to the disciples, let's get in the boat. Let's cross the Sea of Galilee. Jesus gets in the boat. He falls asleep in the back. He's so exhausted that even when one of the famous sudden violent storms that the Sea of Galilee is prone to come up, he's still asleep in the back because he's so exhausted exhausted. And this storm is bad enough that even the experienced seamen who are his disciples are fearing for their life. And they go back to Jesus and the text says they wake Jesus and ask him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus gets up, he rebukes the storm, and then he turns and he rebukes his disciples. And he says, where is your faith? Now, he's not saying you need more faith. What he's saying is you have faith. Why are you not getting it out and using it? Why are you not putting it into practice? And in a sense, Jesus is also saying, how can you call me not caring when you have this faith that you're not even using, when you have this armor I've given you that you aren't even putting on? Why are you not using it? Why do you not have it on? Why are you not so well accustomed to the habit of making the choice to put this armor on that it has become a part of you? And instead, right now, it still feels foreign to you. And so you accuse me of not caring. Where is your faith? I have given you faith. Pick it up and use it and see what I'm already waiting and ready to do on your behalf. Take the things you know, take the things you believe and put them on and pick them up so that the next time this happens to you, you will act as a person who is infinitely loved, accepted and safe instead of a person who is fearful and insecure and worried and angry. Think about it for a second. How would you be different if you responded to the difficulties in your life as a person who is infinitely loved? and lavishly provided for, as Paul's taught us. How would that change you in the way you face difficulties? See, this is the shield of faith that we raise. When difficulty strikes, we extinguish temptation, we extinguish accusation by raising this field and it, shield, and it is a choice that most often we don't feel like making but we're instructed to make, to lift it, to put it on, to take it up. Faith is exhibited not just when we feel like it or when we see it. But the only way we live in faith is if we create muscle memory, if we make this habit, this choice, almost an, almost an intentional response of remembering the promises of God, remembering His purpose and trusting Him and leaning into the Holy Spirit with an expectant, hope-filled heart that He's going to show up and this is going to be fine and we're going to get through this difficulty no matter what it looks like. Fifth, the helmet of salvation. So salvation is a work in time. It's a work in time when Jesus did the work for us. It's a work in time when you accept that work Jesus gives you. And if you want to accept that work and you're, you're convinced, then we take that step. Accept that and, and consider getting baptized in a couple of weeks. It's also, salvation is also a work in progress. It's something that's this ongoing learning for us to be all that God created us to be and that He's redeeming us to the good that He created in us. 
Now, we can illustrate this use of salvation in just a daily battle skirmish that many of us face daily, if not weekly. How about impatience? When you get impatient with your spouse or you get impatient with your kids or you get impatient with a coworker, or you get impatient with that stupid driver in front of you, what are the lies of the, your heart and what are the thoughts that cause you to erupt with, really, could you just get a move on and get this done? Could you just follow through for once? Really? What, what is it that causes us to erupt like that when that impatience comes out? What if instead... During those moments, you refocused your thoughts on the person of God and pondered, Lord, I wonder what I look like to you. I wonder what I look like to you. You are so patient with me. How can I be patient in this time? How would that change your thoughts in that moment? Do you do that? No. Not often enough, do you? And, and I don't do it often enough either. Instead, we let our critical thoughts go. We, we let our hearts get riled up and we pop things out in, in our impatience and we lose little spiritual battles, little training opportunities all along the way that end up leaving us ill-prepared to face the big battles that surely do come in life because we don't have the practice of choosing to put the armor of God on. You see, routine spiritual warfare is the stuff of our heart and our thoughts, and we need to practice to be ready for the really big battles. Six, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So Genesis 3, we see the first spiritual battle between humanity and uh, spiritual evil. And uh, we see in the, in the Genesis account, we see humanity being given this one command, or basically this freedom to do everything except you can't do this one thing. You can't eat of this one tree in the story. And basically everything is permissible except that. And we see Satan come to humanity and say, did, basically to Eve and say, did God really say this? And Eve says, yeah. And then Satan says and takes it to the next level in temptation and says, well, can you really trust God's intent? He's really trying to hide something from you and, 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 and fuses this distrust of God's intent in his words. And as a result, humanity sins and we see the course of history change so that it puts humanity, it puts us, and we're always tempted for us to be in the judgment seat of God and of right and wrong instead of having the proper creator-created order, trusting the Word of God. Trusting the Word of God. It's impossible. It's impossible to be a maturing Christian unless you trust God's Word as reliable. And you trust the Holy Spirit's going to help you, even when you don't understand it, to learn to understand it and to apply it in a way that brings freedom and health to your life. Now, our society gives tremendous bad press to the Bible. You hear it all the time. My kids hear it in school uh, about views of the Bible that, that, that question its reliability and make you distrust it. And, and instead, our society tends to trust more psychology and surveys and studies as providing the answers to the questions of life. But the reality is few people 
in America seriously study the Bible and learn to understand the Bible. So the Bible remains confusing and difficult in many times. And, and the problems that our culture says there are with the Bible become really big issues when in reality the vast majority of them are not even problems at all when you understand the Bible and you understand theology. Do you read the Bible regularly? Do you memorize the Bible? Not that you have to memorize it for a word-for-word test, but do, you, but do you memorize it well enough that you remember the meaning of the, the meaning of that specific verse and can come pretty close to understanding it so that, so that you read it enough, so that you know it enough, so that it's something you have deep enough in you and fresh enough in your memory that when you face something in life, you can have the dots connected between the truth of Scripture and what you're actually experiencing in that moment. See, it's not about earning points in learning the Bible. It's about knowing God and having a base of knowledge that can come back to mind when, it, when the time is right so that we can learn to connect the dots between the command of Scripture and a healthy, good living, whether the time that we're facing is easy or whether the time we're facing is difficult. And it's about relationship. John 14 says the role of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of everything God has taught us in His Word at the time we need it. And that's actually a good definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to know how to use knowledge rightly in the right circumstance at the right time. And that, the Bible says, is the role of the Holy Spirit. It's about relationship. If you don't know the Bible, it's really hard to grow in wisdom. And expect to be free of evil in your life or, or dysfunction in your life. If you, and it's hard for the Holy Spirit to bring anything to remembrance if you don't know it in the first place. You have to spend time getting in the Bible and letting, even before you understand it, just keep at it, letting yourself learn to know it. And that actually, throughout this whole armor metaphor, and especially in this one, gives us a different light on life. I mean... We so often, when difficulty hits us, get angry at God and frustrated with our faith not working, but we don't even have the sword in our hand. We're still trying to fight a battle with a, with a finger sword or a, a finger gun, and that's how we're going into battle. If you don't spend time reading the Bible, then don't expect to fight life's battles with anything stronger than waving your finger in life. Seventh piece of the armor, uh, praying in the Spirit. And Paul brings us right back here solidly to this armor thing is not just you learning stuff. It's all about relationships, all about connection with the head, with the commander. That We know that there's no person in the military and no military unit or army that has ever succeeded without having a commander directing them. And Paul wraps the whole metaphor in relationship, not just for our own sake, I mean, clearly, if we put the armor on, we ourselves are going to live life more protected, more successful, more peaceful. But it's about relationship, and it's about something beyond that. So he says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. So how often do you pray for friends and family members to be delivered from the evil one or the lies of the enemy? How often do you pray for people to be healed? How often when someone asks you for prayer, when you see a need, do you boldly, are you bold enough to allow the, the Spirit of God to be there with you in that moment and work through you right then and you stop and you pray for someone right then? Do we give the opportunity to actually pray engaged with the Holy Spirit in the moments with people? 
Obviously, if you're in a secular setting with rules, you've got to ask permission before you can do that, and you've got to respect that permission. I mean, prayer is intended to be kind, and, and, and if you're forcing it on somebody, you're just, you're, it's, well, it's not kind. He goes on and says, you pray all kinds. How many things do you pray, happen in your day? How many decisions do you make without even acknowledging that God may want to be part of that? What habits do you have that help you under your breath or just in your mind all throughout the day ask God to be involved in this moment in all kinds of things at work and at home and in your community? All kinds of prayers and requests. Do you pray for wisdom? Do you pray for knowledge? Do you pray for right decisions? Do you pray over decision, over, over, over uh, depression or worry or, or physical issues that you're struggling with? Do you, do you pray regularly or, or just ask God about the desires of your heart? Not even knowing for sure whether they're the desires are God's will or not yet. Just, just having a conversation, bringing them into that place in your world. Uh, and then Paul goes on and says this, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for who? All the Lord's people. Now, to me, that's kind of a twist. I mean, if you're fighting a battle, you're kind, of fighting, you're kind of fighting for the lives of the people you're trying to reach. But Paul actually refocuses and says, no, I want you to pray for the Lord's people. I want you to pray for each other. I want you to pray for your Christian friends. And, and then he actually goes on and, and gives himself as a personal example for at least how a portion of that praying for your Christian friends should be focused. And out of that, we see our final lesson of the intended outcome of armoring our souls in this life. Verse 19, Paul says this, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And the focus is this. When we get all this armor on, the whole intent of it is to overcome evil in our community around us. And the way that that is overcome is through getting rid of our fear and our discomfort that we face in sharing the mystery of gospel with other people. The battle is ongoing for the hearts and minds of people around us all the time for the lives of men and women. And we need to constantly be armored up. But the thing that keeps us from actually moving forward and taking action so often and seeing the victory of God in, the, in, in and through our life is the fact that we won't even take the step to share the good news, the gospel, in word, in deed, in our generosity, in our prayer. And Paul specifically says here, in our words. He says, pray for one another that the fear of sharing your faith would go away. And that we would proclaim this victory that Christ has given us openly and honestly. Actually, when he talks about proclaiming the mystery of the gospel, he's actually referring back to the similar passage about a chapter before where he talks about men and women in the church. And he says that this unity between men and women in marriage and this unity that the church has with him is this mystery of the gospel that unifies us. As we celebrate communion today, go ahead and come on up, worship team. I want you to think about it differently. So often we've been taught through various traditions that communion is all about us repenting and getting our sins forgiven. But the reality is, if you are a follower of Jesus, that your sins have already been forgiven. 
You don't actually absolutely need to even do this to have your sins forgiven. If you are a follower of Jesus, they are wiped away. You are already clean. It's all gone. So what's the purpose of the command to remember communion, to remember Jesus through communion? It's to remember that he's called us to oneness with him in the gospel. He's called us to give of our lives as he did, to lay them down for other people for the good news, to bring forgiveness. And he wants us to be a part of that mission. As you come today for communion, I want you to think about the five in your life. I want you to think about the people who don't know Christ yet and receive this. Because what he's basically saying to us in the table is, just as you were adopted as sons and daughters, and this is your family table, there are so many people around you who I also want to be adopted to join you at this family table. Will you pray for one another? Will you encourage one another? Will you learn to put the armor of God on and then act boldly and fearlessly in telling people how good I am to you is what Jesus is saying to you and invite them to that same goodness. Come and continue to worship and receive communion. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.